and welcome back to the Silmarillion Film Project twice in a single week. Well, <laughs> over the course of seven days, not in the calendar week, but still very probably for many people very surprising and exciting if they've been trying to track our schedule. Uh, I know it always is for me. I'm like, oh yeah, oh we're podcasting this week. What do you know? That's right. Apologies for the uh, the volatility in the schedule, but here we are again. We just recorded a week ago. Um, and last week, of course, was a very exciting one where we took a detour, uh, talked to our friend Hakan uh, about costuming, or not costuming, uh, characters and casting. That's right. Uh, now we're getting back on track, talking about story and scripts. That's uh, it. And this is um, uh, session 34 of season five covering episode 10. And if that's too confusing, we're talking about Arendelle and, uh, and journey that she goes on. And more importantly, Finn Golfin's vision, which Finn Golfin's Corey and vision. I do not remember the contents of. That's <laughs> right. So we're going to, this is, uh, so we have a really interesting combination in this episode, right? On the one hand, this episode contains the largest quantity of straight out of the book material, I think, of any episode we've done all season long. Right. I mean, the 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 Aradel's return to Gondolin, you know, we're going to like be like reading out of the Silmarillion for the script for all. Not really, because, of course, you, but anyway, like we're following that really, really closely. And then the other half of the episode is the stuff that is most far out there uh, compared to the text where we've gone uh, sort of furthest away um, in an attempt to to try to get at some of the things, of course, uh, that are happening in the text and to develop some of the characters. But. Certainly, uh, the so the some of the stuff with most uh, backing of the text and least backing of the text, and so it's a fascinating episode this time. Um, by the way, one comment I wanted to make about the casting thing from last time, I have to admit, and so this is for Hakan, who I know isn't listening live, but Hakan, when you do listen to this, uh, the the Holoth casting is growing on me. Like I have to admit, like the 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 and and in part that was because so I as I, I I've mentioned several times that I've been reading uh, unfinished tales, um, and I just last night um, read the uh, essay on the Druidine, which of course talks a lot about the people of Haleth, um, because of course the people of Haleth were the ones who were really close with the Druidine, and uh, you know rereading that in just like after having right after having done that casting episode, reading uh, Tolkien talking about uh, the people of Haleth, and he. Not just mentions, but emphasizes several times how short they were. Like they were really short. I mean, like the Druidine are super short. They're like between hobbits and men. I mean, they're they're they you know they they are completely differently proportioned you know than like most other people. And the people of Haleth were taller than they were, but like not all that much. So you know the idea of our like five foot you know one Haleth that we cast is. Is growing on me. I mean, I will admit that, like, my, because of her stature uh, as, you know, like, warrior, you know, queen with indomitable will, I've always pictured her as physically imposing and tall, especially since, of course, it's kind of a thing, right? I mean, it's kind of a, a pretty big correlation in Tolkien between, like, leadership and stature and height, right? I mean, like, the tallest dude in the in the crowd is almost always the king or the leader. I mean, that's very, very common in Tolkien's world. Um, and so I think that's another thing that kind of subconsciously always made me, you know, and since she is such a dominating figure, 
I'd always pictured her as, uh, you know, so I was like totally picturing casting, um, you know, uh, a very, very large uh, woman uh, for Haleth. And so I like it was one of the things that I was still kind of chewing on when we finished the casting session last time was like, you know, this idea of this, um, uh, you know, this 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 small, relatively slender Haleth that we had cast. But after the uh, essay on the Druidine helped me to come to grips with that uh, because again, he was Tolkien was like emphatic about how short the, the holiday were. So I'm like, okay, all right, fine. And obviously Hurin gets the short jeans from there. I mean, that's very clear. Um, but um, anyway, so I, I just wanted to mention that uh, to Hakan, if you're listening, I am, I am now happier than I was before. I've, 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 uh, I've wrapped my mind around it. I've, 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 I, it took me a little while to adjust my mental picture, but I can get behind uh, this mental picture. And in some ways, actually, it's kind of cool. Um, in some ways, I really kind of like the fact that if, like, from the outside, when you see the Haladin, like, when you, like, come into a Haladin camp, to some extent, if your first impression is, like, wow, these people are not very impressive or intimidating, right? That's actually, that's kind of fitting, right? I mean, they, like, that's the impression. Like, certainly that's what, like, Beleg and Thingol are thinking, right? I mean, if Thingol, Thingol of all people, right, the tallest of all of them, you know, meets Holothin, you know, or, you know, meets the Holodine and is like, like, you know, who are these mortals around my knees? Like, I can't keep track of them. They're so short, right? Like, um, the way, the extent to which he's going to be looking down on them physically, and of course, looking, I mean, it's kind of nice actually for that to track in that way. Um, and therefore, you know, having, having first readjusted my mental picture of Haleth to then go back and, um, kind of reimagine my way through the plot that we gave to Haleth, right. And imagining her, um, you know, surprising everyone, right. Imagining like, you know, Carinthier coming upon, you know, Haleth and these other short, unimpressive, (laughs) ill-armed, uh, people and being like, dude, you guys seriously held off those orcs. I mean, again, it, it fits. It's really nice. Again, Thingol and Beleg meeting them and being like, what on earth? Um, that's really nice. Uh, them, you know, ambushing Tevildo and killing Tevildo and Beleg being like, are you are you serious right now? <laughs> right, like that's, that's, I like it. I like it. It's great. In some ways, it does actually. It, I've convinced myself that it works even better than ha- having you know like a you know a six foot three Holith or something like that. So anyway, um, Thingol would be looking We're down. On, on board. I'm, I'm on board. I mean, he'd be looking down on a six foot three Holith anyway. But but still, <laughs> still, uh, we we might as well we might as well lean into that effect. I think. Um, um, but yeah, Julie says the lack of height would also emphasize the childlikeness of the Haladin compared to the elves. Yeah, yeah, exa- and they're and you know and it it tracks with like they're they're going to be and they're going to remain primitive in comparison to the elves. I mean, even like that's one of the things that we were emphasizing, uh, Marie, even in the Andreth episode, right? When Andreth comes up, um, the comparative. Uh, uh, primitiveness of them um, and their contentment to rest there, right? You know, that uh, it's one of the things I liked about that episode. Like, yeah, we don't have all your fancy technology. No, I'm not literate. You have a problem with that? Like, this is the way we live and we're okay with it. Um, I, I like it. I like it. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so I thought it was, uh, I thought that was, uh, that was, that was pretty cool. Um Okay, so um, uh, 
great. Anyway, so sorry. I just want I, I, that's been on my mind. Wanted to share that in response to to last week. But before we go too much further and uh, start arguing with Marie, I mean, start a cordial and convivial discussion of episode ten. Um, and I'm mostly teasing Marie now. Um, I, quick announcements. Our biggest announcement this week is regional moots. So we had uh, Myth Moot. Um, and Mythmoot was awesome, as I was talking about last week. And uh, um, now it is officially, now that Mythmoot is done, it is officially open season on regional moots. We are really looking forward to um, uh, a full year of regional moots. We're, um, we're in the middle of planning 10 or 11 or 12 moots uh, this year. It's going to be really cool. Um, we're still not sure about international moots, uh, whether or not you know, we, we, we want to go and do our Europe moot again. We had plans to do Dragon Moot in Wales um, last year, and we would like to try that again. Um, we were all scheduled to do Nippon Moot in Japan uh, before we had to cancel that, and we'd really like to revisit that one. Um, we were planning to do maple moot in toronto so all the plans for all three of those are like still there and we're ready to revive them but international travel is uncertain i can't even get into canada yet um so we're not planning those anytime soon so people always ask me about those um i have no active plans because we have to wait until travel things um change a little bit more but I am still hopeful that maybe by the spring of next year. So I'm not planning on doing, we're not planning on doing any, trying to do any international moots here in, um, uh, during the calendar year, 2021, maybe in the spring, uh, you know, early summer, uh, next year, maybe early next fall. Um, we'll do them as soon as we can, but we can start planning domestic moots. Um, so we're definitely looking to do not only the same round of moots that we did before, um, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, Southern California down by Dave, uh, Orlando, Texas, uh, Middle Moot out in Iowa, New England Moot here is going to be our very first one, probably the last Saturday of, of, uh, of uh, September. Um, uh, so we're not only going to be doing all of those, uh, we're also definitely going to be adding a few. Um, we're going to be adding um, uh, Buckeye Moot in Ohio. Um, that's certainly going to happen. Um, and we're going to be doing, um, uh, uh, and we're, we're planning right now. I'm pretty sure this is going to happen. Um, uh, but we're uh, planning to add one out in, out, out West, um, in Salt Lake city. So I'm interested. I'm, I'm still interested to add one in the Pacific Northwest as well. It's like one of the biggest, our biggest like holes, uh, in the country that I would still like to like to cover. Um, but we don't have that one yet. Um, so anyway, that's, um, uh, that's, uh, the, the biggest thing. So I would just say for those who are, um, uh, for those who are listening, um, if you are interested in being involved in helping to plan one of our regional moots, if you want to join one of our regional moot planning team, uh, we have uh, really good support for our volunteers there. We have our moot in a box that we, you know, we have we, we have things pretty well scripted. Um, what we mostly need are people who can be, you know, boots on the ground to help us find uh, places to be and stuff and, you know, help us plan like what we want to do, you know, themes and discussions and things like that. It's, um, uh, it, we can, uh, we can help walk everybody through that, but, uh, but we do need, in order to make a moot happen in different places, we do need volunteers. So if you think you might be interested in helping to be on one of our moot planning teams, um, 
then let us know. Send us an email at info at signumu.org, and we can, uh, we can connect you with our events team. Um, so anyway, uh, that is our main announcement. And of course, Signum Clubs are continuing this summer. Absolutely. Um, our clubs program is, uh, uh, is really exciting, and we're, uh, we're going we're gonna to be expanding it uh, as we head into the fall. Um, we have a bunch of new uh, language offerings uh, that we are working on. We have uh, 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 a bunch of things. We're going to be uh, offering things like Translation Club in New Testament Greek and uh, Conversation Club in uh, Japanese and German and a bunch of other languages uh, this fall. So um, in, in addition, of course, to our book clubs and creative writing clubs, which are already up and running. So um, that uh, is uh, uh, is pretty exciting. Um, anyway, so that is... Um, uh, that is what's going on. Those are our announcements. And now, let us get back to our, or get us get to uh, our discussion. So, uh, the title of episode 10, I like to think about the title for a second uh, when we begin, is Bound Together. Um, uh, that's, that is an interesting, that is an interesting title. Bound Together, which of course suggests, you know, a play on word and multi, uh, play on words and multiple directions, right? Um, we have, of course, Arathel and Maeglin bound out together for Gondolin, right? Along with Aeol, whom they didn't, who they don't know is with them. As well as um, Aeol's, it also seems to anticipate to some extent Aeol's words to Maeglin, right? That their fates are bound together as well, which I, which I kind of like. Um, you know, the way that that play, um, I like the way that that title kind of f- sort of frames uh, the A plot in that way, right? Arthel and Maeglin bound together for Gondolin at the beginning, and then Aeol and Maeglin bound together in cursed death and infamy at the end. Uh, so that's fun. Um, and uh, um, the with the we, of course in the B plot we have the the, the weddings, right? So we have uh, we have that kind of binding uh, together uh, in the weddings, and and I really like, by the way, one of my favorite parts of this episode is the way in which the kind of connection, um, the not exactly parallel, it's it's not a parallel. It's not just like a, a kind of a forced parallel. Um, but the, the kind of overlay of the marriage between the two houses, right? The house of Hador and and the Haladin, um, and the Adain and the, uh, the Eldar, right? You know, we've got like them kind of like thinking about their relationship together, um, and how that works, um, and how that's going to work. Um, especially since, um, it, it's a it's a fascinating element, I think, of the B plot. Um, uh, well, the C plot, I guess, primarily, um, which is we to this in in the season so far, like the first nine episodes, to some extent, there are like different phases of like the courtship phase of humans and elves, right? Like them meeting each other and getting to know each other and overcoming initial obstacles and settling in and like deciding what's going to be. And now like, um, you know, at this point we're now, we're, we're well into this, right? We're like a generation into this. And, um, there's now the question of like, you know, how is this, uh, how's this relationship going to go on? Right. You know, how is, you know, now that we have established um, a good 
status quo, but like, what does status quo even mean when it's related, you know, to men compared to what it, uh, to what it is with elves? We've already seen, of course, in the House of Beor, a certain amount of those that kind of um, uh, uh, that that kind of uh, um, you know longitudinal changes, right, and uh, uh, similarities and differences. So we've already had that to some extent, um, but we get sort of a, another angle on it uh, with um, uh, with Fingolfin and uh, Fingen up there. Fun to see Fingen himself, who was differently from Finrod, though equally to Finrod, the most gung-ho of all of the Noldor about establishing these relationships with uh, with humans. Uh, and to see even Fingen being like, yeah, I'm not really quite sure what to do now, right? <laughs> like, okay, so now they're here, and they, but um, but it's, it's, you know, even Fingen seems to acknowledge that there's some weirdness uh, to that relationship. You know, it's, there's, there's, there's still sort of strain. Um, so, um, so again, I, I, as I said, I really liked the overlay of the, um, the wedding uh, feast and the contemplation of the relationship between elves and men. I thought that that worked really, really well. Um, and we're going to not talk about the frame, right? We're saving the frame. That's that's the plan, right? We're going to do a whole frame thing uh, later on. By the way, like just. Today, like literally in the last hour and a half, um, I was reading the passage in Unfinished Tales, which is our like explicit justification for the Inconus plot, right? The one where uh, the, the 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 time, uh, the earlier time. I th- oh, now I'm forgetting already whether it's earlier or later. I think it was earlier um, when when Tolkien does explicitly say that Gandalf may very well have explored Harad. Um, so, like, there we are. The whole frame, almost the whole frame, not quite, uh, not quite. Um, Sauron is the meaning for the season, but I think it was implied. I, 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 yeah, I'm pretty sure that's that's what that's what Tolkien had in mind. Yeah, I, I think I think we've uh, we've clearly uncovered his uh, uh, the obvious uh, unspoken <laughs> intention yeah. of that passage. I think, yeah, yeah. That's hang on, wait. Uh, no, no. I think I'm going to stop playing the. Let me see how uncomfortable I can make Marie game, and instead just <laughs> move on. <laughs> So, okay, let us dig in to our three plots. Arathel and Maeglin traveling to Gondolin being the A plot, the uh, meeting of the three houses and the weddings being the B plot, and Fingolfin and the siege and the vision being the C plot. Um, Okay, yeah. Um, Arathel's death. So this part, I think, is clearly the least controversial part of the entire episode, right? As I, as I was... So, uh, let me ask the question this way, Marie. Um, were there parts of... What parts of the version in this, of, the, of the text in the story were you feeling we most need to amplify? Because, again, it's, it stays very close uh, to, the, uh, to the version in the story. Were there parts of the, you know, in thinking about the scene-by-scene ad- scene adaptation um, of the version of the Return to Gondolin story uh, in the text, were there parts of that that were, that were particularly challenging, that we felt like, you know, we had some sort of, we would have some challenges to meet? Um, it's, it's, uh, seriously, I can't even remember a whole scene or a whole section of an episode that was like more straightforwardly following the text in like the last two or three seasons, frankly. I mean, I, I have to go pretty far back to find anything like this. 
Right. This this part is very closely from the book. So um, when we were discussing it, there were a few things we did have to work out. And um, one of them is that we wanted Maeglin to be the point of view character. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there would be some reason to try to make it Arabelle, but she doesn't quite see the story the whole way through. Uh, <laughs> right, <so> right. <laughs> if it were from her point of view, the scene would come to a sudden and unsatisfying end. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's difficult to have the point of view character die within the episode. Um, right. So from that, for that reason, primarily, it had to be Maeglin. But we still wanted Arabelle to have some agency in what was happening. We didn't want her to be passive. So we didn't right. want it to be like, Maeglin says, all right, time to go to Gondolin, Mom, and then drags her there, and then she dies. Like, So we were trying to avoid that. So okay. Maeglin's the point of view of the character, but Arabelle is the one instigating the now is the time we should we should go and this is what we should do okay so that that was one of the first largest mm -hmm. changes right aravel's initiation of that now so do we see aravel so just to just to kind of pause there for a second do we see aravel because we, we've done a lot of work uh you know getting into aravel's head in her agency right from well before this leading up through especially um you know one of the big questions that we were preparing for and that we uh, attempted to answer earlier on is why does she leave gondolin because we were dissatisfied with the idea that she was just bored or something like that right um so how i agree sorry who I agree this is important for her to choose, right? For, for this to be, how does her choice to return to Gondolin fit in both with her kind of earlier frame and choices and mindset um, and willfulness and all those other things that we saw, you know, strength of will and everything in her? And how does, and, and, but, and how also does it fit with, Ale. This is the, the, the sort of the moment of her final rebellion against Ale. She's 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 out. She's she's done. Um, she just means to turn her back on him forever, basically. Right. The confrontation between her and Ale had reached the point where she's done with him a long time ago. However, right. they have a child, and she's definitely not done with her child. So the yeah. only thing that's been keeping her and Nan Elmoth is definitely not what drove her out of Gondolin. It's not her mission. It's not her ideals. It's not her love of ale. Those have all gone away now. Right. Um, it's she, she wants to be there for Maeglin. So this is a, a moment where ale has gone off to Nograd to see the dwarves and Maeglin didn't go with him. And she asks him why. And he starts talking about how he can't, there's nothing for him there. That he can't learn anything more from the dwarves, and yeah. Ale's not the hotshot that he thinks he is. And all, you know, basically, right. Myglin deconstructs right. Ale's the whole situation with Ale. So when right. she sees that, it's like, great, you don't actually need your dad. Let's go. <laughs> so she, right. she realizes that Myglin is old enough that he has reached a point where he can choose and he can make a decision. Right. And therefore, she has something to offer him. And offer some gondola. And so in that way, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that way, that is a really good, I mean, because it is initiated by Maeglin in the text, 
right? So it is an interesting way for us to kind of preserve that on the one hand, right? Um, because his his choice, sh- she is respecting his choice, right? She's not going to just take him away from his father against his will, right? Against my good's will, I mean. Right, yeah, exactly. She could have done that when he was a baby. Get up and left, but, right. But... Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so no, I, I think that that's, that's, that's a really good way to, to think about it. And as Nick says, it is of course, in many ways, an admission of failure. Um, so it is clearly, um, a humbling moment and even a, even a, a, a choice of humility. I mean, you think about the ways in which Aradel has been, or at least has wanted to be, you know, a sort of mover and shaker among the, the Noldor, right. And so for her to return, ultimately seeking refuge, right? I mean, that's what she's doing, right? She's, um, she started off season five by saying to Turgon, we shouldn't be just hiding from the world in here, right? And now she's returning to hide <laughs> from Aeol in Gondolin. So it is uh, humiliating uh, in that way. And, um, but I think that that's, that's that's kind of a good place. To, I I I don't think that that makes her weak. I think that the, you know we we can do that to show how it it makes her stronger. Like she's willing to like she she needs uh, this, and it would be merely stubborn for her to be like, well, I'm not going to return to Gondolin because then I'd be eating my words. Yes, she has changed in how she views Gondolin and how she views Turgon, and. Right. We were hoping to have some acknowledgement of that in their reunion, although they don't have time to like sit down and talk about everything. Right. Um, so, kind of distracted by the whole ale thing. Yes, yeah. there's a bigger issue going on. But yeah. the, the goal was to have there be some exchange of words where Aradzel expresses to him something along the lines of recognizing that, that his his vision. And how he's been carrying out his vision is maybe not as fruitless as she had thought. Right, <laughs> like she right. sees the value in what he's doing. And right, she right. She she started off thinking it was just a waste, right? Like where this is this is, uh, um, but now she sees like yeah, actually, you know, I can now see circumstances under which there being a refuge in which uh, you know elves uh, oppressed in the in the lands outside might be able to seek, and that, that actually that comes in handy. Uh, maybe it's not such a bad idea. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think, that, but again, but but she wasn't wrong either. Um, you know, right. it's not I mean, like, yeah. Jurgen's going to have opportunities to think back to her point of view in the future. Definitely. 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 And of course, and and this is one of the things that I liked most about how we set this up at the beginning of the season. We will still have Idril to be the voice of that um, because she was in sympathy, not in like complete, she didn't like leave with Aradel, but um, she and Aradel were close enough that Idril will still be there to be able to be the voice of Aradel's perspective later on. And so, so yes, we will get plenty of times to acknowledge that she wasn't wrong. Um, and you know, she's not been disproved, you know, by, uh, by all of this stuff, but yet she certainly will have changed her opinion of Turgon's thing. Right. We, we wanted their reunion to, um, be as joyful as possible so that when she suddenly dies, it's sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. No, that's great. I really, um, um, I really, I really like that. Tell me, uh, in the outline, the 
conversation between Aeol and Kurofin was really brief. Um, was uh, like the description of their conversation was really brief in the outline. Was that because you're were thinking mostly of fo- following pretty closely to the text? Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. There didn't need to be much more than what's already there um, right. for either of those characters. So we were just like, yeah, do that. <laughs> that's, that's also that's one of those scenes that it seems like could like really drag the episode a little bit. Uh, we we talked about if we wanted anything in particular to happen with it. So we did suggest changes, and then we discarded those changes. <laughs> we kind of just went back to, yeah, whatever's in the text is good. Um, right, right, right. There was at least the thought of introducing Telegorm and Huan into the scene. Um, we haven't had Huan in quite a while. Right, like just to include them, but they weren't really doing anything, so it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, is there anything thinking about the scene in the text? Um, we, of course, have added a good deal of context for Kurafin, right? Um, hi, Wally. <laughs> good night. Um, I, we, we've added a lot of context for Kurafin and what's going on with the Feanorians, right? So um, that's one way in which I think... Um, just like, you know, if we went line for line uh, with the dialogue out of the text there, um, um, one, one of the things that I was kind of doing when I was when I was reading that part was just sort of running through that dialogue in my head and asking myself, OK, like, how does this sound coming out of the mouths of our characters, right, that we've been developing and given the context and the story that we've had them participating in so far? And when I when I did that imaginative exercise with the Aeol Kurafin conversation, I was like, "Yeah, Aeol, it's perfect. Like it fits exactly what we've said." I don't, I don't. But with Kurafin, it doesn't. It's not. It's not that it doesn't fit him at all. Like I, we can. You won't have to change any of it. Um, but that was one place where I was like, "Well, we know more about." like what Kurafin is up to and what his perspectives are likely to be and what the implications might be for the um, whole kind of like political situation in the siege between the Feanorians uh, and, uh, you know, their um, their other Noldor neighbors there between the Feanorians and Thingol. Um, uh, I mean, of course, in the book, we, we already have... Um, you know, we know the eventual conflict between the Feanorians and, and Doriath. So we have some, you know, like, if you know, you, there's some like foreshadowing perhaps of, of vague things to come. Um, but anyway, so just did you have any thoughts about how we might want to contend or even what impact, uh, even if it doesn't change the actual scene itself, just to taking a moment to think about the kind of impact that this is going to have, like moving forward with Kurafin and how this is going to impact what, what, where the Feanorians generally and Kurafin specifically are going to be after this, because it's pretty isolated in the book. That exchange is pretty isolated in that sense. Right. This, this is a, a kind of an odd scene in that Kurafin is not someone who has had an opportunity to do much on his own before this. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is the one thing he does before we see him acting later. Right. The, you know, telling thing is the, you're not supposed to just steal people's daughters and marry them, uh, is like, yeah, Kurafin, you're not. <laughs> yeah, that would be a horrible thing to do, Kurafin. Meanwhile, like, 
Corifin takes notes like, hmm, stealing people's daughters and marrying them. There's a crime I have not yet committed against my brethren. Okay, I, I note to self, right? <laughs> That's now on my bucket list. Yeah. Yeah, so there is that impact of that line later on with the whole Luthien situation in Telegram. Yeah. And so we'll have to consider, but I, I assumed that this conversation would impact how we portray that more than right. the other way around. Right. Um, so it was more like, well, make him say it and then deal with the <laughs> deal with the fallout later. <laughs> right. Certainly that kind of payoff of the conversation. That's obviously it's a next season question, but um, there will be some payoff. And so we that is a we should remember to have somebody quote that say that back almost exactly. I mean, it would be pretty funny, wouldn't it? If uh, like the emissaries from Doriath say almost exactly the same words that Corifin said to Aeol. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, we spent more time trying to figure out what Curifin knew about Aradel's situation. Right. And right. therefore what his reaction to this would be. Because she had gone to his lands before she went to Nan Elmoth, but didn't see him. Right. And Right, yeah. That's, that's a question leaving, that Ilana is asking here. How, how would they know? Yeah. Right. And she's leaving Nan Elmoth, going towards his lands, or through his lands, actually, to get back to Gondolin. And that's why Ale assumes that she's there with her. Ale right. assumes that Curifin has spoken with her, right. but he hasn't. And that's where it's like, okay, well, what does Curifin know in this conversation? And what is he just inferring based on what Ale is saying to him? Right. Um, right. So that and was it, why it was kind of important to start some of those rumors earlier where the people of Curifin's land knew that Arabelle traveled with some dwarves to Nan Almoth, and, and then there was that rumor that Ale had this noble wife that the dwarves know about. So, like, you get the impression that Curifin could have heard enough to have figured out that Arabelle right. is in Nan Almoth. And that would Ael certainly, s- it, like, yeah, that would certainly simplify things a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It would simplify things a little bit because. You got to think if, I mean, you know, because Ale pulls out the, like, he calls him kinsman and stuff, right? And you think that Corfin would be like, like, what are you on about? Like, I, why are you even, like, that doesn't even make any sense. He would just be puzzled. And he doesn't express puzzlement uh, in the book. So, um, so yeah, how do we avoid him just being uh, puzzled? Uh, and so, yeah, th- those rumors, but, and he's, goodness knows, Corfin is smart enough uh, to put it together when he hears him say that, you know, to make that quick to, to that that quick conclusion. Right. Um, so that, but they probably would. Yeah, go ahead. About, Sorry. Making sure that Curifin had a basis for saying the things he was saying, and that it right. didn't completely come out of the blue. Right. Right. No, that's good. Uh, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay. So Nick is now saying, or is taunting me. Uh, not exactly, but he says that we spent a lot more time trying to figure out why Kurafin doesn't follow him. Yeah, but okay. Now I want to know why doesn't Kurafin follow him? It's a great question, right? Um, right. The the part of Ale is going to track them through Nandangorthab and all the way to Gondolin. Kurafin apparently is patrolling the borders of his land, looking for Aradel too. So why does he just say, carry on, Ale, and let him go? And the implication was supposed to be that he doesn't think that Ale has any idea where Arabelle's going either. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't think that following Ale will lead him to Arabelle. Okay. And so he gives him that warning of, like, <laughs> follow her and die, dude. 
<laughs> right. And, and if, then he just leaves it at that. And maybe are we assuming that he that he Kurifin is assuming that Ail's gonna heed his warning? No. No. Mm-hmm. He's pretty Kurifin sure Ail's not going to. One of those prophetic taunts of you are getting exactly what is coming to you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I am warning you against this, not only uh, suspecting you're not going to believe, but fully counting on the fact that you're not going to listen to me. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I, that sounds very Kurofin, uh, uh in both directions. So, okay. So he believes that Aeol is headed off to his death, so he's not worried about Aeol, right? Because he's he's already prophesied his doom, and so that's taken care of. Why doesn't he go to try fi- try to find? I mean, he's friends with Ara, though, right? Right. So he is looking himself. He just doesn't necessarily think that Ale is a clue. <laughs> right. Right. Ara the left Ale. So it's like, well, you know. Does he, um, Kurafin, know that she's gone off into Nandungorthib? No. No. Okay. Okay. It was. Erdo was spotted in his lands by one of his people, so he's hanging out, seeing if he can find any evidence of her or news of her. But he didn't—he didn't get the news that she went through an Right, and as Alana points out, everybody generally thinks that Gondolin is somewhere in the south of Beleriand. So, if both Aeol and Kurifin are both leaping to the logical conclusion that if she did not come to seek her friends, the Feanorians, she has most likely attempted to return to Gondolin. Kurifin, if he doesn't, not knowing where Gondolin is, might suspect that that means that she's turned. So he would perhaps have active, or believe he has active reasons to suspect that she's not gone to Dungortheb. It would It would be logical for him not to conclude that in that case. Have we, we, we haven't seeded any of those rumors, have we, about Gondolin being in the South? No, we haven't had too many people talk about, hey, Gondolin, yeah. I wonder where that is. Um, right. We'll probably do that a bit more um, in season six and seven. Yeah. Seven, definitely. Um, yeah, seven, definitely. Okay. All right. <laughs> we did get around to it. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. That's fine. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, I uh, responding to a comment on YouTube. Um, no, we are not officially part of the Amazon show. It works the other way around, you see. The Amazon people are following in our footsteps. We've been doing this for like six years, right? Um, clearly, uh, I think my personal theory is that Jeff Bezos is a fan of ours. And so seeing some film and what a wonderful project this is, he was like, I need to invest half a billion dollars in uh, exactly this kind of thing. And so he went out. That's my personal theory. No evidence to support it, except the obvious fact that they're doing exactly, you know, what we're, we've already been doing for five years. So there we go. Um, I'm joking almost entirely about almost all of that, by the way, except for the fact that we've been doing this for six years, which is fact. This is, Marie, you just calculated. This is the 140th episode of Film Film, right? Um, uh, uh, stretching back to good grief. What was it? 2013? Maybe? twenty. I think you announced four? it in 2015, I believe. 2015, was it? Okay, anyway. Anyway, yeah. ages ago, in short. Six years, hey, just like I said. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, um, there we are. Um, okay, so... Um, all right. Uh, 
other things that I wanted, other kind of moments here that I wanted to sort of lean on. Ao follows them. How he tracks them? Right, um, he knows that Aradel came through Nandangortha before she came to right. the forest, because I mean right. he's been living with her for the last fifty years, so he right. knows a bit about her, and she's never revealed the location of Gondolin. But, but he knows that's he the direction she came from. Yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. we're, we're going to show him chasing after her a few times, but we're not going to know how close he is until the scene where they release the horses because they're about to go through and the horses neigh and we see Ale hear and respond to that sound and we realize he's right there. So we're not going to know how close or how he's tracking them really other than just show a couple scenes because he's not going to talk to anyone. Right. 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 You mean we're not going to have scenes of like Aeol having a dialogue with his horse to like explain the exposition that we need? Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fine. Uh, Don't we we think he probably would have gotten some details out of her about sort of at least like the general direction to head in? I, I think that she knows to keep that a secret. So she's probably been very particular to not say things that were specifically about the location of Gondolin, but she couldn't hide that she's been through Nandangartha before. Like, there's, right. that's what I mean. Like, he just, he knows enough about her to Yeah, I would, I would think with, without even, like, following, um, you know, uh, you know, doing some, like, Aragorn-level tracking, I think even without that, he's got to, at least would have an idea of, like, which direction to point him to ride in for, right. for at least a good long while. He would, right. he would, he, at the very least, he would have known when she showed up that she showed signs of having been traveling through Nandangortheb for a long time, right? I mean, it was, you know, so he would, yeah, so that would explain why he goes from the meeting with Kurafin straight to Nandangortheb and just rides as fast as he can through Nandangortheb trying to catch up with them. Because um, in one, in that sense, he doesn't have to, like, follow their trail. He does know the direction. But it's going to be luck, you know, that's going to and, you know, and of course, ultimately the horses um, that are going to lead him to know when to stop going through Nandangortheb, right, when they've gotten to the entrance. Right. And I mean, we've shown Ale use magics before and we've shown him be very possessive and very um, suspicious of her. Yes. Yes. if he's just magically able to follow her and we don't explain why people can reach their own conclusions about how he did that. I kind of like the mystery of it. Cause I mean, seriously, who knows what ale is capable of? I mean, he clearly has power of some kind, right. And is very secretive about it. Um, uh, so yeah, no, I actually I I really like that element. You know, the the way in which he is just this like shadowy figure who is following, and you don't know exactly how close he is, and you don't know exactly how he's following them. But um, but yes, one can easily speculate that they are um, uh, um, you know, kind of moving um, uh, yeah, that, like you know, s- somehow he's managing it, and I, I d- that just seems to me. Uh, really, really fitting. Um, okay, so tell me more about the, now the scene, the big scene, right? The um, confrontation 
with Aeol and Turgon and Aravel and the Javelin and everything else, right? Again, like, uh, mechanically, we're following the... T- there's no. There's nothing... I, I didn't... I didn't notice anything that we changed, like any detail that the text says that we took out or something like that. Right. That, again, was pretty much a preserved scene from the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because why not? (laughs) Uh, The only changes would have been uh, the reunion between Aradel and Turgon. Anything that they said before Aeol's brought in could be based on the story that we built up in Gondolin prior to her leaving. But right. once Ailes brought in, it's the text from the book <laughs> playing right. out. I mean, that's that scene. Right. So to make adaptation choices, we put that into the aftermath. Um, when Aradel is sick and the they're trying to heal her and Idril's sitting by her side and Maeglin's there and Turgon comes to see her. And, you know, the news isn't good. And Turgon pulls Maeglin aside. And yes. It's like, look what is the deal here? Because, like, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you know, he knows Era, though, and the way she reacted when Aeol showed up, he's like, that is not normal. This is not how right. people react when they're reunited with their husbands. <laughs> so, right. like, right. clearly something is, like, something is going on. <laughs> right. If the poison javelin didn't, didn't give us a pretty clear idea that this was dysfunctional. Yeah, no, I, I, I agreed. Like, that only proves that Aeol is 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 like you know uh, a freak, um, but yeah, him trying to understand Aradel and her whole story, basically, right? right? You know so, how things so got Mag- to that point. Maglin has the chance here to say what he thinks about his parents' relationship, and he does the thing where he says something that is like this much positive about his dad. <laughs> Like, yeah, uh uh-huh, that's that's who he is. (laughs) And Turgon's like, got it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Myglin's failure to defend his father there, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a very deliberate choice on Myglin's part, shapes Turgon's decision of what to do about Aeol. Because Aradel was kind of pleading for mercy on some level, right? Right. Um, And that seems normal. Um, there have not been no executions yet among the. Elves. I was gonna get to that, but let's let's hang on a second before we get there because yeah. I got some other things I want to ask about before we get to the ex because the execution is the big question, right? Uh, and I wanna I wanna I wanna end with that one as far as the a plot is concerned. Before we get there, um, nonverbal cues, right? Dialogue is pretty much the same, but we have a whole bunch of nonverbal activity going on uh, at that scene. Uh, even, I mean, and I don't even just mean the hurling of javelins, right? Um, I mean Turgon and Aravel meet and see each other. What happens? Run and embrace? What's his reaction? How does So he's surprised. It's like she's returned from the dead, right? He had okay. reason to believe she was dead. And now here she is again. So we ha- do, do we have him running to embrace her? Uh, and her? how do we, you know, what, um, what instructions do we give the actors there uh, for their reunion? Yes, it's supposed to be that he's sh- shocked because he thought she was dead for years. Right. So 
she has just this is a resurrection scene as far as he's concerned right um right so the the joy of the meeting is supposed to be very high with lots of surprise lots of unexpected you catastrophe kind of things going on and, right. and then ale's brought in and that and right. the boy and the boy like and and wait yeah. like and, and, and you've a kid I have a son? yeah right. like where did right. he come from right an almost fully grown kid right i mean yeah is just very surprised very surprised know what to think of any of it and so but his so initial happy. reaction to Myglin is going to be contextualized by the joy like Myglin's going to be a part of the miracle right to him right 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 okay Aradol has returned to him with his miracle child and so therefore clearly setting up his response to Myglin after her death right Maiglin is now what remains of the miracle um, of Aradel's. You know, Aradel may be dead, and that is a horrible tragedy, but of course, he's already mourned her, right? So, of course, he's mourning her a second time, um, but he has, he has long grown accustomed to the idea that she is dead. But now, the miracle is that, like, his dead sister. He now has a son from his dead sister, right? Like from after she was. I mean, like again. So, so again, the 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 context in which I think this is um, this is going to be really important for uh, to to establish this as the basis of Turgan's relationship with Mygwen, um, and even can help to explain um, what I think is going to have to be a certain degree of blindness towards Mygwen later on, right? I don't mean like the full-blown betrayal thing, right? But I mean Idril's creeped out and is going to become increasingly creeped out as time goes on. Turgon has to be some level of oblivious about that, right? I mean, there has to be and um, and so this, I think, in, in other words, there needs to be a reason why he doesn't take his daughter's side. You know, why he is not sensitive enough to his daughter to, like, catch on to her creeping, you know, her, 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 uh, you know, the way that she's all skeezed out by this guy. And, like, he, he needs to be oblivious to that. And this would give a reason, right? Um, you know, he's still, he, Mygwen still is, like, in Turgon's mind, still part of that eucatastrophe um, of Arthel's return. So, okay. Uh, so we need to make sure we leave enough time before Aeol's dragged in, right? We need to leave enough time for the joyful reunion and the joyful greeting of Myglin, right? We need to really root and establish that. But speaking of things that need to be rooted and established before we get distracted by the whole Aeol situation, Idril. So Idril and Myglin, what are the instructions we give to those actors uh, for, non-verbally for this scene? Right. So I know that your inter- interpretation of Mygwen's character has been that his whole vision of why Gondolin is worth something to him is because Turgon has a daughter, but not an heir. And like he wanted to meet her. So he should be interested in meeting her. And she <laughs> doesn't necessarily notice him at first. I mean, any more so than the Return of Era, though. And like, why? Errol has a kid now. <laughs> right. So right. Idril is just happy and surprised like her dad at first. They notice each other in a scene that we can actually show at the deathbed. Um, right. Because Idril's there with Arabelle and so is Myglin. So if Myglin is maybe distracted 
from his dying mom to notice the pretty girl. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't say anything good about Myglin. <laughs> yeah, he's right. standing in his mom's deathbed staring at Idril. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. So, so there's right. an opportunity for some creepy awkwardness there that doesn't have to be too overblown, and it is merely creepy because it's in a because of the context, right? Yeah, and and exactly. and it it does provide us with a pretty understated way to show the like inequality of their attention, right? You know, if they're both at the deathbed of Arathel, and his attention is divided between his dying mom and the pretty girl, and she's like one hundred percent focused on Arathel and barely, you know, I mean, it's not like she, you know disregards him or doesn't acknowledge him but um but she she is she is not you know looking out of the corner of her eye at Miglin you know she's focused entirely on Arthel right there and so we can um so it, it that that will allow us to show both from the start he is much more focused on her than she on him and also that like there's something not quite right uh there it should make it, I think we can introduce a little discomfort without making it to uh, because like he should not look skeezy right i mean we, we're not yeah like we, we're not going to have we're not going to introduce that kind of an element uh certainly not at the beginning i mean by the time we get towards the end i mean by the time tour is there right you know his attentions to idril um uh can be more actively uncomfortable um right he can get a little bit more desperate when he realizes yeah. she's actually interested in someone else. Right. Uh, right. As long as she shows no interest in anyone else, he can kind of go along with the status quo thinking, well, someday, someday right. she will, she will notice me. <laughs> exactly. He's told, I mean, maybe he's, he, yeah. Go, maybe go like, maybe sort of at some point, it doesn't have to be in, it, in this episode, but he overplays his hand uh, and is just like a little too creepily interested and in like, and sort of detects that they're that she's noticing or someone's noticing, and then disciplines himself. Right. And then, uh, and that discipline doesn't falter until until he has competition. Because he's totally going to play the long game. I mean, he's yeah. he's settled in for the long game. It's not like he's. Uh, it is. It is. It is not like he's. Yeah, going to be so foolish or so impetuous as to, you know, hurl himself at her in the first five minutes of their meeting. Like, there's no reason to do that. They're both elves, for crying out loud. Um, uh, And he's smart enough to know that that would be, even though he's not even fully grown yet, you know, we still have him, uh, you know, a a Noldoran teenager, right? But still, nevertheless, even as a teenager, he knows well enough uh, to... um, uh, and And, of course, for people listening don't forget when i say teenager i mean peril he's not actually it he's what is he 35 ish is where we put him 51 51 oh he's 51 he is of age then wait we what it's on the slide yeah there it is right of course there it is yeah it's under the tree i missed it um yes yes uh yeah he's 51 so he but so he but he's barely of age he's barely of age so like he's just turned 18 in elf terms basically exactly he, um, he thinks he's grown, and yeah. most other people do not. <laughs> right, right. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, and and I mean, and she's way older than he is. I mean, obviously, age difference among the Eldar very different from age difference among humans for obvious reasons. Um, so that's that's not itself an obvious problem. Um, but 
um, again, certainly in this moment, um, from Idril's point of view, this is not even like she wouldn't even see him as on her uh, level, if you see what I mean. I mean, it's it's it's. Um, uh, Idril would be one of the people viewing him as still a child. Yeah, definitely, definitely, she would view him as a child, um, and. Um, not to mention, she also views him, for obvious reasons, as her cousin, right? So, <laughs> so yet another reason why she would not be thinking in that way. But okay, all right. So I, I, I like the deathbed thing. That's a really good opportunity. Um, so we, we won't the at the first meeting, um, we won't be doing much. Uh, if anything, we'll do because Mygwin is our point of view character. So we may get a noticing of Israel. Right, because he's he's been looking forward to this. Right, this has been one of the right. main things he's focused on. Right, he he can notice her, but if we want to introduce the creepy element, uh, it, it takes a little more. And the the focus of the greeting scene is Turgan. The U catastrophe and the joy, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Okay, um, so uh, one more uh, nonverbal uh, uh, instructions to actors thing. Arathel and Aeol, when Aeol is brought in in chains, how do we instruct those two? We've got, Turgon is relatively easy here, right? Because he's he's joyful, right? So he is already, and we see this in the text, he's all ready to welcome her husband, right? Oh, hey, you must be Arathel's, like she's got a kid, so I'm not surprised to find a husband, right? How how wonderful. And here we all are together. I mean, you can clearly see that's the direction that Turgon is thinking when Aeol is brought in, right? Um, understandably, you're being, you know, dragged in at least metaphorically in chains because, you know, like that's the law and everything, and that's what we're supposed to do to strangers who are caught at the gates and stuff, but hey, it's all good. Here we are. But Aeol... And Arathel, what's going on with them? Arathel's face when she sees him has to give away how much of a disaster this is. Right. And how she never wanted to see him here. Like the whole reason Gondolin is safe is because he keeps people like him out. Um, so is she is she afraid? Does she show fear? Um. I think that's more the like when people like go pale suddenly for a second. Like I guess that is fear, but it's more of the shock and right. dread than dread of like this is going to be horrible, like a horrible scene of one kind or another. One other speech. It's not like she's afraid for herself. Like no, she's not yeah. worried he's going to be able to do anything to her here in Gondolin. No, right? but she didn't want him here. Right. Like, this, is, yeah. this is it's a disaster because this is not her plan. Yeah. Um, he wasn't supposed to find them here. Um, right. Right. The, the best case scenario is that she's now going to have to live in Gondolin with Aeol <laughs> from now on, right? Like, that's the, that's the best case scenario here. And that's pretty bad. Um, except there is a really nice opportunity here because Turgon has rules in Gondolin. And one of those rules is that you do not leave. And Arabelle's had to put up with Aeol's rules in Nan for the last. 50, 60 years, and suddenly Ale is being subjected to that same treatment of, oh yeah, you can't leave. You're going right. nowhere. Um, now that you're here, you stay forever. That's that's how this works. Right. And So, the, so there's I a certain element of Arabelle satisfaction? Would, yes. 
I think Aretha would be like, "Me, right. <laughs> meet my <Right>. brother." <laughs> she's looking back and forth between them, and she's getting out the popcorn, right? Like, oh, I can't wait to see how this plays. Yeah, yeah. There's both. So, like the the dread of him being there, but also that comeuppance and superiority of how do you like it? You know, right. she has to be feeling a little bit of that when she realizes right. that Ale does not like being Turgan's guest. Right. Yes. I came into your domain and you've been claiming this mastery over me and now you've come into my world, right? And yeah. my brother's world and now you are subject to these laws and let so so yeah, she she didn't want this. Again, it's not like that's a happy situation at all. Um but that's why she's not afraid, right? She Right. It's right. going to, like, again, the best case scenario is that this is, is going to be awkwardness that won't end for centuries, right? That's the best case scenario, and she knows that. Um, so she's not happy about this, but yeah, she's... But it's a big city, like, they, they could just not see each other very often. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> right. There's other people here who aren't silent. Right. So, right. So even if she doesn't want him there, this is still much more freedom, and she's in charge. This, these are her people. Right. Right. So... So she is she is standing in a position of strength and knows that she's standing in a position of strength and would still even in a sense be like emotionally buoyed by the joyful meeting with her brother that has just been interrupted. That, of course, makes the shock more pronounced, right, when a suddenly Aeol comes in and as Nick says, it's like seeing a ghost, right, when suddenly Aeol pops up. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a complicated kind of reaction from her. Uh, um, yeah, now... How about Ale? What's what's going through Ale's mind um, as he's as he's standing there? Indignation, he was, obviously. He's been he like was, he was not counting on the "I'm not in charge anymore" situation. Like and he does not like that. Mm-hmm. Like when he goes other places, people usually fear him and respect him enough not to treat him this way. And he has to know that Arabelle's not going to really step in and defend him. Yeah. Especially when she starts getting the gleeful reaction to his, his, <laughs> his discomfort. Like, he, he's got to know that he doesn't have uh, an ally right. in, in the room. So someone with Ale's personality, when they are put in a difficult spot where they get called out and where they don't have the power that they're used to having and they don't have the respect they're used to getting um they tend to react very badly and they tend to lash out um so the part where the next thing he does is pull out a poison javelin and try and stab his son to death is extreme but not a huge surprise it's not it's at least not a huge surprise that he's going to do something extreme like an extreme reassertion of his control desperate reassertion of his control because he's so powerless and that sense of powerlessness is going to drive him absolutely crazy and so that he does something crazy no shock no shock um there was there was some discussion of like how premeditated is this after all a poison javelin you had poison on it that was my next question yeah and who carries a javelin under their cloak i mean like Where did the javelin did we, come from? Can we talk about the javelin for a second? Right? Like, okay. So, I understand. Like, obviously, 
you say the word javelin, and the first thing I think of is Olympic track and field, right? <laughs> um, that now, obviously, it's not a javelin like that, right? Um, yeah, I mean, like that. I, I mean, I, I distinctly remember the first mental picture I had. You know, I'm like, how did he even fit it under his cloak, right? Uh, um, uh, but anyway, so um, how did no one notice it? <laughs> exactly right. They obviously did a really bad job of frisking Aeol when they arrested him at the gates, right? Um, uh, they need better metal detectors uh, at the gates of Gondolin, obviously. Um, but so clearly the javelin, you know, what is called a javelin could be something significantly smaller, right? Um, possibly even something that could be kept like in his sleeve or something like that, right? Like, um, uh, I'm, I'm imagining, basically, it's, so I'm, I'm thinking of like a very large dart <laughs> rather than a, rather than a, a, a like a, a big old javelin. It's not going to be like the kind of javelin that you'd throw 150 yards, right? This would be more like a, a short range, um, Still at range, right? So it's not like a dagger that he's throwing, but it's still a you know something that he is can conceal, either like up his sleeve, possibly uh, uh, occurs to me as a a, a thing he could do. Um, I could imagine a kind of throwing dart that you could like strap to your forearm or something, so that he could reach under his cloak and pull it out and and throw it, and they would not have necessarily thought to. I mean, they're they're going to take any obvious weapons from him when he comes in because they don't know who he is or what he is, right? Presumably. I mean, we would expect them to because that's what guards do when they stop people, right? They, right. like you said, metal detectors, <laughs> that's where our thoughts go. We're used mm-hmm. to going through a checkpoint and right. having people pocket knives. Um, so it seems a little odd, but he's also from a culture where they don't have metal detectors and they don't take your pocket knives. So, and kin slaying is a pretty extreme thing. Like, one could go the other way yeah. around and say, so, "What would I they mean, be afraid they, of?" Like, right? Why? Yeah. Why would they strip search him? Obviously, they didn't yeah. do that. You know, like that's yeah. not a yeah. So, well, the, especially if, if they have some, if they have some prior knowledge about who he is and the fact that he's uh, um, um, Ardell's husband, it's like you're not. Dra- you know, I mean, they are kind of dragging him in, but basically, it's. You know, like, yeah, I think he'd be given the benefit of the doubt. Right, right. Um, yes, yes. Um, and even um, uh, thinking about... Uh, even in the very much longer description that we get in the long tour story, right, when Tour and Veronwe arrive at the gates... I don't think they get their weapons taken, do they? I mean, granted, think about what Tour's carrying. He's dressed in the suit of armor that got left in Nevra. What are you going to take the prophesied sword that like was left for me in Nevrast, right? Because yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, we, so. we it is a fair point. We do see a recurring pattern here of extremely poor throne room security. <laughs> poor why throne room security. Dra- why yeah. are we dragging armed people in? Uh, into the throne room before the king, especially after this incident, when we should have learned that this is dangerous. 
Right, exactly. But prior to this incident, so I mean, because because there's there's prior to this incident, there's several potential answers to that, right? One is again, this is apparently Aradel's husband. Like he's not a Noldo, and he's pretty rude, but. Okay, he's Arthel's husband. Why should we be afraid he's going to start chucking poisoned javelins at people? Like, it's not a thing you do. Um, who's done that? No one has ever done that, right? Besides which, like, paranoia fearing assassination attempts against the king, like, that's not really a big thing, right? Like, do it. Do the elf do do Noldor kings have bodyguards? Like, do they does that do they do that? I don't know that they do. Would they? I don't know that they do that. I mean, especially in Gondolin, for crying out loud, right? If if there's a king in Middle Earth who does not need bodyguards standing on either side of his throne, it's Turgon, right? Sure. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, so like the the idea of uh, that this is a massive security breach, as far as you know, the, that it. Um, if anything, it makes his actual murderous attack more shocking, right? I mean, everyone should just be utterly shocked, not just by the... F- I mean, there's, like, several levels of shock. Like, A, he had a concealed weapon that he pulled out and attempted to use against another elf. Like, holy cow, who does that, right? You know, not even Feanor acted that way, right? I mean, it was, you know... F- Feanor didn't just start slaughtering folks. He just stole their ships, right? And then, you know, killed them when they tried to resist, Mostly. Anyway, point is like <laughs> the poison javelin thing out of nowhere. I'm chucking a poison javelin out of you is beyond the pale that anyone has really experienced. Um, that he's throwing it at his own son is like extra levels of unexpected weirdness that nobody would anticipate, right? Um, but nevertheless, despite that, I still think it would be pretty odd if they're like, yeah, he came and he has this four foot javelin, but we're like, that's fine. You got your javelin. We'll let you bring your javelin. I mean, it would still just look weird for him to be coming in with, and it says it's under his cloak. So it's gotta be small or else it's just going to look odd. Um, I mean, people are going to laugh when he pulls it out from under his cloak. If it's, if it's too big, I mean, I'm sorry, like that's just going to be comical on screen. We don't want, we don't want that scene to be comical, of course. And so yeah. I'm fine with it being a smaller and anticipated uh, javelin. Yeah. Um, the the whole point of it is that he had the murderous intent, and no one counted on that except for Aradel, who reacts quickly enough to do something about it. Like everyone else, kind of just ends there in shock. Yeah. So even if there are guards, the guards yeah. don't anticipate this, so they're just like, "What is this?" Right, and that's and there's two senses of that. Right, she, unlike the guards is not shocked when he does something not only crazy, but violent, right? This is, she's, she, she reads it, right? She, but not only that, there is no one else besides Aradel who would ever expect him to chuck it at Maeglin, right? She anticipates his mind well enough to, because I mean, look, if you're pulling out a dart and throwing a dart at somebody, I mean, like, as soon as he makes the movement, before he makes the movement, she's got to be in motion, right? Um, yep. So, as like, she's got to read it in his face. Like, so, I mean, I think we, we need this, like, nonverbal exchange where, like, we see by his face that he's made his mind up what to do. She sees in his face and knows what he's going to do as he's, like, reaching in his sleeve, right? Um, and so she's already got to be, like, starting her leap in front of Mylan, right, um, before he comes out and throws it. Um, uh, 
uh, otherwise physically it's just not it's just not going to work but I like that right I like the way in which we we can show her anticipating this because to everybody else it's going to seem really strange now but here's the challenge how do we make it not seem really strange to the viewers right why does he attack Mygwin what's going on in his head here and how do we make it fit with what we've shown from him the part where she's feeling like she's in a good position and watch, you know, like the watching with popcorn part of the scene yeah. and he's getting more and more distraught and disturbed. And, and so he, he's got to be looking back and forth between Turgon and her. Right. So right. he's assessing Turgon and the situation and what it's going to mean for him. And then he's looking at her and seeing in her face, her confidence and her very understated enjoyment of of his discomfort, right? And that's going to egg him on even more. Yeah, so as that escalates, it reaches a point where he's done with this. He's not going to live this way. And like you said, she sees that. She reacts to that. So she stops being the, what can you possibly do? You're in my land now. To, oh no, don't you dare. Right, (laughs) right. And so she has that shift. So if we're seeing... Her reaction and we're seeing his re- like we can see where it's going off the rails so what it builds I, up I to the wonder, co- do we, yeah go ahead Dick. do we need to i'm wondering if there's like extra work we need to do in this episode or i guess even earlier to like set up the idea that um, um I, and i think we we've discussed this before so i think we have done some of this but like we need to set up the idea that like sort of possession of megalin is important and so, so because as you point out, Corey, so it's not just like, why is he, why is his reaction to, I don't like the deal I'm getting, I'm going to murder my son now. Right. Like, we need to make it very clear, like, maybe maybe through the course of this episode, as he's chasing them, he keeps mentioning Meglin or something. And then when he first catches up to them, maybe one, one of the first things that he says to Aradel is to, like, is to, you know, kind of yell at her about taking Meglin away. Make it very clear that like his fixation is on Meglin. We um, do have the scene very early on when he comes back from Nograd and discovers them gone. Yes, uh, with the silent servants. Like w- we talked about whether or not to show that, and we're like, yeah, let's show it. And and so that moment when he discovers they're gone, he could say it like you're saying. I can't believe she took him from me, or some something like that. Right. Yes, right. And, and that would. Yeah, that would kind of get that started. But we did establish in, in two separate earlier episodes that Aradel and Ale are tug of, yeah. playing tug of war over their son. Absolutely. Right on. Aradel yes. just on the tug of war. Yep. So and so, yes, if we have him play. verbalize that to the silent servants, like he says, right. he doesn't have to say much because he wouldn't say much. They don't say anything and he doesn't talk <laughs> much at all. But he would utter a sentence, right? Uh, yeah. That would that would show that like that that's how he yeah. that that's how he's processing this right. She <laughs> thinks that she's won like you know she's so she's trying to take him from me is she or something along those lines right. Um, right. So that so we're, we're we're prepped for that. Final action will make more sense. Yeah, because even in the te- even in the text right the culmination of that uh, emotional escalation, uh, Marie, that you were describing within him right. Um, as he's you know going back from Turgon to 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 uh, to Arthel and seeing this progress, the climax of that is his appeal to Mygwin, right? He like is going to push all of his chips to the center, right? He he first he he asserts his independence of Turgon, 
right? I don't recognize your law. You can't control me. But it's clear that like that's not going to pan out, right? So he he he. That's almost his last card, right? So when he appeals to Mygwin, and you know, and tries to command Mygwin and calls Mygwin to come to him, right? That's his last card, right? If he um, if if that fails, he has nothing. Um, and you know, as Ilana was pointing out, like an abusive parent like that is, you know, an abusive father like that who has finds himself so utterly powerless, right? All of the power, he's used to being the one in charge. He's been the one in charge, you know, for 50 years now, right? Um, he has believed that he has had both of them under control um, in different ways and to different extents, but he has been in charge and now he's lost everything, even Mygwin himself. He can't even dominate Mygwin anymore. He's lost Aradel. That's obvious. Like that, that he would see in her, right? He would see her confidence, her satisfaction being on her home turf now. He would see this, like that Turgon's laws, Turgon's attitude, Turgon's power. Here he is at the center of Turgon's power now, right? So he can't, he knows that he can't win this battle against Turgon, but he could still. Um, dominate Mygwin, and then Mygwin refuses. So I, if we if we show that, if we kind of emphasize that well enough, we show how his... If we lay the right kind of stress on that line, right, on his appeal to Mygwin, and Mygwin saying no, when he snaps, because it would be snapping, right? I mean, that's, that is totally what happens there as he snaps, right? Um, and that when he snaps and lashes out, he does so against... Mygwin in exa- I mean, I get. We're not saying anything new. I mean, like this is actually what the text describes, right? That that uh, that is precisely that we're kind of um, filling it out a little bit more. But that is precisely the dynamic. That's what you know. If I can't have you, then nobody can, right? Is uh, is more or less exactly what he says to Mygwin as he throws the javelin. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I think. Um, uh, I think that that's, I think that that can really work and not just look random and unexpected. Again, Torgan's not going to expect it because he doesn't know the kind, he doesn't know, um, the whole abusive background, right? Certainly, you know, the guards and onlookers, poor Glorfindel, who's going to be standing right there, uh, right. Um, is, you know, we're, we're surely we're going to have Ecthelion and Glorfindel in the room, right, right. When this happens, um, and they're not. Um, uh, they're not gonna. They're not. Gonna, by the way, I'm assuming we're cutting uh, Legolas Greenleaf, right? <laughs> for the sake of avoiding confusion, I assume we're not having Legolas Greenleaf here. For those who are listening, who are get, in the original, in the Book of Lost Tales version, Legolas Greenleaf is a Gondolin elf uh, who is uh, uh, takes part uh, in the whole thing. Um, he is not like Gorfindel, in fact, that same Legolas. Like, no relation. Tolkien steals the name again later on. Uh, but um, I, I, we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna keep him. Um, I kind of think the, we should now. <laughs> the only minor Gondolin. I'm just kind of reviewing in my head. The only minor Gondolin characters. I, minor compared to Turgon and Arthel and Idril. I mean, um, we've got Gorfindel, we've got Ecthelion, we've got Pengalov. Um, we'll have Rogren obviously later on, um, but that's it, right? Just, 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 just those three, 
Uh, we've introduced the names of the lords of all the houses at this point. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, Galdor is the one leading the Sindar who have gone to Gondolin. So he's had a few lines. And yeah. um, I believe Egelmoth was there um, in, in the scene where they discover Gondolin. And yeah, it's like we've, we've right. thrown the minor lords in kind of like, look, there's more lords of Gondolin. Right. Um, right. But yeah, they, we haven't done very much with them. It's mostly Glorfindel and Ixthelion and like you said, Rogren. Um, and right. then Tengalod being the son of Tenlod, one of the other lords. So right. Right. those are the only characters we spend enough time with to really understand their characters. Right, right. And obviously they're not important uh, to this. I'm just kind of trying to keep in my head yeah. whom we, we would recognize all in the room. The voice, of all the houses to, yeah. to make sure they've shown yeah. up on screen at least once, right? Right, definitely, definitely. Uh, yep, they're going to be important later. Okay, cool. Um, so now let's get to the last question, the execution issue, right? So Aravel... Multiple, multiple questions about this in the comments, multiple, by the yeah, way. Multiple, yeah, exactly. About, like, like, why, like, like, why is this okay? <laughs> and we've doubled down on this, right? Yes. I mean, earlier in this season, by making it a huge, like, that capital punishment was a a stumbling block to the elves, right? They thought the humans were orcs because they were using capital punishment. And so like it's plan a for Turgon, right? Like it's a thing in Gondolin apparently. So we have to, we have to, we have to set this up really carefully. Right. Right. So the, the deal is that this is not the first time there's been a case where an elf has killed another elf, you know, kinslayings have happened in the past for the Noldor. However, the punishment for the kinslaying that they were all part of, was banishment. Right. The the Valar banished them from Valinor on account of what they did, and uh, Feanor was banished from Tyrion when he threatened his brother with a sword. So the go-to punishment is banishment. Right. This is Gondolin. How do you banish somebody from Gondolin? <laughs> yes, exactly. Gondolin. So really, they're only left with two choices. If you if banishment is no longer an option. You either have to do permanent imprisonment. Yep. I mean, it's not even lifetime. It's permanent. Permanent. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or execution. Like either would be an option. So yeah. that was the thing is that there is no exiling Gondolin. It is interesting. Logically. Um, yes. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, now I, of course, one of the challenges is that we, we don't we don't have time for a discussion of jurisprudence uh, in the episode, right? So we have to. Um, Turgon is going to give a little bit of a speech before they check him off the walls. So right. his right. pronouncement of what ale has earned and why can include the and this is why it has to be this way. Yeah. Um, thing, he's obviously like you said, he's not going to go into a whole. Description, but I think right. mentioning that, yeah, like exile, that's kind of what you asked for <laughs> that caused this whole thing. So, no, you don't get that. <laughs> right. Um, right. Um, but that's okay. I mean, here's, here's the main thing we have, we have to avoid, right? We can't have, um, cause it is possible. I'm not saying I think the text suggests this, but I think the text would endure the reading that says 
uh, Torgan was ready to show mercy on Ale, but then Aravel dies, and uh, in rage, he's, he has him executed, right? Um, if it looks like an emotional decision on Torgan's point, like, I am so angry at you, I'm going to execute you now, that is bad. Like, that does not fit with what we've seen. That would be a real violation that would uh, be hard to stomach, especially in the... Con- so we have to be really careful not to let it look like that. So a little speech from him kind of, expl- you know, talking about this. Because surely this is this has never happened before, right? There's never been an execution in Gondolin before. So, you know, and not to mention that, again, hey, um, I propose we, com- we, we uh, have a little kinslaying this afternoon is, I mean... It's a big deal. It's a, and so much bigger of a deal among the elves in almost every way, right? Than than capital punishment is among humans. Um, so, um, so yeah. I mean, would we have? Um, we could with our crowd of Gondolindrim lords who are standing around, right? We could have some various kind of, I don't mean we have a whole council and debate, but like just in, in people's facial expressions and stuff, we could have varieties of reactions, right? Different kinds of murmurings and things as this is going, there would be some people probably who would be enthusiastic about the execution of ale, right? There would be some people who would be shocked, um, and, and, uh, disquieted by the idea of an execution and wondering whether this was, you know, but giving Turgon the benefit of the doubt. I think there's going to be any excitement for it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's more somber shading into shock. Um, like, this is not the, hey, everybody, let's come check out the exciting thing happening in the main square. I hear there's an execution today. <laughs> like, right, that is, right. That is not the a- atmosphere. Um, yeah. So mostly everyone just kind of standing there silently while it happens, and then mm-hmm. they're reacting to it. We, we did talk a good bit about what to show or not show. Um, yeah. So showing him get pushed over the wall is okay. Yeah. According to us anyway. <laughs> yeah. you're no, right. I, I think, I think I, we, we can't, we can't, I mean, like have it happen totally off screen. Like we, the, especially right. since it is a really shocking thing. I mean, like mm-hmm. this is a big deal. Are there any other examples? Are we going to get a single other elvish execution? I mean, Maglin's going to get tossed off the same wall, but in different circumstances. Oh, yeah, exactly. They're, it's, it's no, gonna, they're going to be fighting when it happens, right? Yeah. But just um, like a, a straight-up cold-blooded execution in this way, I don't think we get one, right? Um, as you right. say, won't be the only elf to plummet to his death. Um, I mean, Cyrus will do that uh, for you know, for, as far as that's concerned as well, right? Um, yeah. But right, but this kind of just like a pure judicial execution. This is a big deal, you know, and so I, I, we, we can't totally shy away from it, but I agree, uh, you know, a shove off the wall uh, and a little bit of discreet plummeting. Uh, uh, well, that was the thing. Is we didn't want to show the plummeting part. Okay. Because, no plummeting uh, at all. Well. Not even a discreet not, plummeting. Not even like fr- from a distance, a black speck descending no, no, the white walls. That's Denethor off the, off the prow of the ship and. That no, it needn't right? be. First of all, he's okay. not. They're not going to set him on fire first. For one thing, well, right? That, that helps. But okay. Yeah. But the point is, someone falling and going ah. No, no, I, I don't mean no, no, no. Yeah. I'm just okay. Yeah. So yeah. the idea was show him getting pushed, 
Yeah, show him getting pushed. Show some reactions to him being pushed. Yeah, yeah. And then show his dead body at the bottom. Then the show place. the broken carc- carcass at the bottom. Okay, right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it would still be pretty, like, shocking and evidence that he is, in fact, dead. <laughs> like, yes. he died here. <laughs> but we don't have to show the fall. Are you okay with that? Or did you really I, I, want I'm, to... I don't insist on the fall. <laughs> I don't insist on the fall. Um... Um, I don't insist. I certainly am not imagining like close ups of him, like, you know, those shots of um, um, uh, 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 the Alan Rickman villain plummeting to his death in Die Hard, right? Like the look, oh, facial look. Like, I'm yeah. not saying we need something like that, right? I'm not talking about any. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Um, it's fine. I was. Corey would settle for just like a, a, a fading voice. And then a <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 uh, that, no, no, not that either. I, I so I guess the t- there are two things that I'm <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and like the little splat sound that they use uh, on at Swamp Castle in in the Holy Grail, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, no, but the reason. I was kind of envisioning the plummeting is of course I'm, I'm thinking about my death later on. Right. Um, and I want to, um, I want to make sure that we, so because I want to, um, make sure that we clearly established this is the same spot. You know, when my falls to his death, it's got, you know, we, 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 we it's got to be really clear that this is the same spot. Um, and, um, so I wanted to, I was kind of thinking, I was pict- I was picturing a sort of context, right? So like, I brought a visual aid. Um, so I was imagining a shot not quite this far away from Gondolin, right? Um, but just so that we can see like, where in the city is it? So that, um, because it's not just that we need to have, when Maeglin falls to his death, they need to be like, oh, wait, he's falling in the same spot, right? We can build up to that, right? Like when uh, Maeglin uh, confronts Aravel and, and you know, juvenile Arendil during the battle, right, and tries to take them, it's going to be in the spot, right? And we can see the spot. And, of course, we'll have – we'll be setting up the spot, right, as other parts of Gondolin are on fire and everything else, right? You know, so um, anyway, I just – it's um, – I. And the anticipation, it's its my anticipation of the Maeglin moment that's mostly guiding me here. I agree that the scene where the execution is should be distinctive and unique. So right. we should recognize that location in Gondolin. And if we need an establishing shot to do that, so that, like as Nick is saying, give you some context for the bigger parts of the city is where that is, like that's fine. It's just the part where we show him falling off the wall doesn't, help anything like we, we couldn't come up with a good reason to show the fall we could see good reason to show the shoving off and we could see good reason to see the dead body at the bottom okay. but the fall itself was cutting breaking up the scene in a way that wasn't I, I can think of a reason but I think that the reason that I can think of is totally satisfied by the corpse at the bottom as long as I get a corpse I'm okay right because the totally reason yeah 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 the, the the primary reason that I would say is that like I would want Violence has been done in Gondolin, right? There's like a stain on Gondolin, right? So bloody corpse at the bottom, I'm okay with that, right? Especially if the bloody corpse 
is not going to be on a random slope of the mountain either, right? I mean, it's going to be... Um, so, like, there should be an obvious disjunction here, right? Um, th- this should be, like, broken elf corpse lying in Gondolin, right? The the first death ever to happen in Gondolin. Um, well, second death. Are they'll beat him by a little bit. Um, but anyway, first violent death. Okay, technically. Anyway, never mind. Understand. You, you see what I'm saying, though? Like, this is a big deal, right? Um, and should establish... It establishes, you know, this is... Um, the broken corpse of Ale is literally laying the foundation for like the many other elf corpses that will someday uh, be seen in Gondolin. So um, that's the main thing. But it's it's fine. The corpse can establish that perfectly well. Which leads me to perhaps the last question about this, and that is, um, Turgon decides on execution because execution is better than permanent incarceration. Which, by the way, seems to me totally justifiable. Um, In fact, I can almost imagine... um, I can almost... People who argue against capital punishment talk about, like, how extreme it is, right? How, like, how permanent it is. Well, for the Eldar, execution is a good deal less permanent than permanent incarceration, right? I mean, life in prison, that's irreversible. That's that's permanent, right? That's Whereas, you know, um, you push him off a cliff and then let Mando sort it out, right? I mean, and he could he could be redeemed. He could he could, you know, get healed. Uh, he could repent uh, in in Mando's. That's it's, it's less extreme. Right, actually, than incarceration uh, for the for the Eldar. So I can totally see that. But so, but not. But the question: Why push him off a cliff? Why that method of execution? And why this cliff? There has to be. There has to be. Again, it's not like like I, uh... let's take him to yield execution cliff. This is not like the Tarpeian Rock in Rome, right? Um, there's not an established to... gibbet sort of a related question to this too like earlier we were sort of we were hinting at that we didn't want this to feel like too that he was doing it out of anger but I kind of I feel like it's it's I don't it doesn't seem to me to be a huge problem if it is a little personal in the sense that he's like you know all right well I've had it with this guy um especially once Iron Hell's dead there's like you know what? As long as she she was alive and willing to advocate for for Aeol, there's like okay, well, you know, I should respect her wishes and and like find find a way to work work things out with Aeol and have mercy. But then once once she dies, it's like, I, yeah, you know what? Forget it. I'm not dealing with this guy. Um, right. And I think and so it seems to me like it's it's sort of okay if the for starters, if the choice to to push him off a cliff as opposed to um, imprison him forever is a little personal and a little sort of like you know, like yeah, you know, like okay, uh, I'm, I'm just done with him. Well, it um, can't be a totally dispassionate decision, especially no, given the extreme emotional positive reaction he was in the middle of that got interrupted by the murder, right? So yeah, also, yeah, and he's completely set up in the and he and he's been handed sort of the just the petty justification for it in the sense that all of this transpired because ale had made it perfectly clear that the last thing he wanted was to stay here forever 
So it's like, well, you don't want to be here forever. I've got right. your exit right here. Right, exactly. Um, um, so, he's he's opted out of life imprisonment because he he's, he's yeah. you know is okay. Well, I'm not okay. Right. Um, so so this is what he's chosen. If, it seems fine if the choice choice of method and also the the like location are have some kind of special meaning. Yeah. 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 Um, so they're going to throw him off. They're not going to, so they're not going to like chop his head off or something because why should they, they don't want to stain the, like, Just because they're going to execute the guy doesn't mean they have to, like, make... They don't need to build a tool to execute someone. They're not going to construct a guillotine. They're not going to erect a a gallows. A gallows, right. Yeah, they are, and they're not going to grab a sword and and hack his head off. They're they're not going to soil one of their own swords with the blood of their kin. Yeah. Right. Or dirty their own hands. I mean, you could say like the hands of the ones who pushed him are still kind of dirty, but um, but still less so. I mean, I, the the blood matters, right? You know, I mean, thinking of you know Carinthier's taunt, you know, come thus red-handed, or, or sorry, Thingol's taunt, come thus red-handed, right from the slaying of your kin, right? Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, that was all I was, I was going to say is that they're not going to build a tool to do this. Yeah. So the pushing him off is the part where there's no tool involved. Yeah, they just have to improvise. Yeah, yeah. So, but that brings me back to why here? Um, because it doesn't have to be a conveniently high cliff. It doesn't take a very high cliff. Um, uh, you know, so like pushing him out a third story window might do it. Though I suppose the Eldar are particularly hardy, so you might need to go to a sixth or seventh story. But they could have done it in any number of ways, right? Why here? Why this spot? Because, like, I mean, this I is just... a big moment. Some kind of personal. <laughs> there has to be a reason like for the Arundel's choice. Favorite spot from her childhood, right? Well, I mean, no, no, not no one's childhood here, but the. Yes. Right. But good point. Uh, but a, a spot where we've shown Turgon and Arabelle interacting before, mm-hmm. or um, one of them was the place where he put his two trees up. Right. And that would be kind of not like a judgment seat, but still a, like maybe the heart of Gondolin or something in the sense of like, that's what Gondolin is all about. And this is a person who has violated that. So this person needs to get out and so we're going to push him over the wall. <laughs> right. Um, that, that kind of imagery might work. Right. Does he, uh, cause yeah, I mean, he would, first of all, the fact that he does it in a very public place also makes sense. Like he would not want, I mean, he, he would not want this to happen in secret. Like that would be a bad look. Um, uh, you don't want the people of Gondolin to be like, you know, I heard a rumor that like Turgon totally offed that new guy. Right. Like, I mean, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it honestly and in public. Right. I mean, that seems like a, 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 a Turgon, a piece of uh, uh, Turgonish jurisprudence, right? To say if if we're gonna if we're gonna do this execution thing, we're gonna do this honestly and openly, um, 
you know, and like, you know, explain this to everybody in the full light of day so that he does it in public makes all kinds of sense. And so therefore I would expect it to be not, he could take him up to the top of his tower and push him off. Right. But he's not going to do that. Um, he is going to do this like in a public square, basically. Um, not because as you say, everybody in town is like, Hey, here, there's a hanging today. Let's go see. But, um, but again, because it's, it's, I mean, if you're going to do this justice thing, um, and if he feels that execution is justified, he's going to do it openly, uh, before everybody. Um, I, that makes sense to me. Um, but the reason I feel like it has to be a spot that he, he's going to know first execution ever, right? Everyone's going to always think of that, you know, like this spot in Gondolin is going to be permanently changed, by this moment, I said they didn't have a Tarpeian rock, right? The famous rock that they threw traitors off of uh, to execute them in Rome. Um, but they do now, right? I mean, like, it's so he's got to know. So he's got to be thinking that, right? This is going to be like everyone in Gondolin will always remember, uh, will always associate this spot with execution. Um, and so he's got to be he's he, he, he I, I cannot imagine he is not deliberate about that. And so there needs to be, not to mention the fact that just forgetting Turgon for a second, for our purposes, we want it to be visually logical, right? We want the, the viewers' associations with this to be uh, consonant, significant, right? We, we want to be managing uh, the, the, the context, not just to be like, here's like a random wall, you know, st- stretch of wall and him plummeting down onto a random stretch of cliff. We could do that, but I think we lose a lot of opportunities here. Um, and as I say, I can't imagine Turgon actually thinking that way. Um, yeah. Uh, Ilana is recalling that there's a scene overlooking the city when where Arthel shows him her view of it at the beginning. I think, was that, Marie, the one you were thinking of, where the two of them were standing and talking early, like in episode one? Well, yeah, there's a few scenes in episode one between Arabelle and Turgon in Gondolin. So yeah. having one of those scenes work. The one where she goes up to share the view of the city, I believe she's with Glorfindel and Expellion. Um, they were at least in that scene uh, for some reason. So I'm not sure that that would work as far as throwing people off, off cliffs goes. But, I mean, something. Something right. where it ties back to that first episode. Um the one I was thinking of is when she meets Turgon under the trees and they start right. talking about okay. uh, that, the conversation that leads up to their confrontation. So mostly because the two trees is probably the most distinctive place in Gondolin. <laughs> like right. everyone knows that there's only one place that looks like that. Whereas right. if it's a wall around the city, unless there's something on the wall. Right. Yeah. Uh, again, it has to be easily visually recognizable, um, even because c- remember, it not only has to be recognizable when Maeglin gets thrown up, but remember, <laughs> lighting is going to be very different uh, when Maeglin gets thrown off the wall. Right. It's going to be in the middle of the battle. Things are going to be on fire um, when uh, so it's going to look very different. And so, therefore, we need to... There's going to be smoke, there's going to be fire, there's going to be people running around, there's going to be orcs, potentially. So we need to make absolutely... There has to be some really distinctive landmark. The Two Trees works for really distinctive landmarks. Um, 
yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Ryan uh, Kimball on YouTube was saying, you know, can it be a perimeter cliff? I, I mean, I, Ryan, I've always kind of imagined that too. Um, but I, it, it, it has to be distinctive, right? It can't just be a, stre- a random stretch of wall or like a random stretch of wall next to a particular tower or something. Because again, we have to be able to... And again, not to mention... I, I can't imagine Turgon is like, okay, let's do the first Elvish execution ever. Let's take it. Yeah, this looks like a good spot. Let's chuck him off here. Like, it's, it's just, it's not the, I can't imagine that's the way Turgon thinks. It's got to be a significant spot. Right. So a significant place um, with a space for a large public gathering. So a square or, you know, something, not just like a corner somewhere. And a distinctive landmark and on the perimeter wall. Right. So like right up against it. So I know Nick just said something about the main gate to the city being a good idea. I would think that the two trees would be visible when you come in through the main gate. I, I don't know that we established where exactly those are, but if you go through a main gate and there's a square and then there's the two trees, that all might fit together pretty well. Mm-hmm. The problem mm-hmm. is would um, tour and <laughs> I was thinking we do have to make sure we can we can contrive to get Idril and Arendel there. Um, yeah, yeah. Because um, I don't think they'd be by the main gate. Uh, that is so certainly it's... not the direction of her. I mean, Idril is not going to be digging her tunnel right next to the main gate. Like that's certainly not going to happen. But it's okay. Like we could get. I mean, yeah. But what, the main gate's not going to be on the way <laughs> from anywhere else. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but there's other gates around the city, and if one of them is where the, there's a square that has a fountain, oh wait, nope, sorry, Excellion's busy there right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, ocu- the fountain's yeah. occupied. Uh, yeah, the, fountain, uh, the, fountain, the fountain is off guard, off base. The, the yeah. towers are off limits. The main yeah. gate's probably a little busy. So yeah, it has to be a little bit off, out of the way, but distinctive. Could we have, is there any absolute reason why we can't have, like, um, like the major courtyard, courtyard outside Turgon's Tower, um, uh, back against the wall? Right, that would be a good idea. Because if it's not, like, the main courtyard of the whole city, but it's the main part of the royal area... It would make yeah. sense that Tour and Idril's house is in the exactly royal that they, they live there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, that would be a place that Idril could have put the entrance to her tunnel, and yeah. And also, that. I I kind of like the the two trees of Tur. If the two trees of Turgon are in um, a big courtyard out near the top of the city. Uh, near a drop outside the tall tower, which may or may not have some association with Ecthelion. I mean, I, I, I like the anticipation of Minas Tirith is what I'm saying here, right? That, um, uh, oh, the tower of Ecthelion and, this, and, and there's a big tree. And, and the white tree. And the, yeah, uh-huh. Right. And it's not could, identical. You could fall off into the city if you really wanted to. <laughs> right. Yeah, you could fall off the other side into the city or you could, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, obviously we're not, we don't, like go too hard into those parallels, but it's an echo, right? I mean, it's, it's an echo, uh, potentially. So I, I, I kind of, I kind of like that. Um, 
yeah. Um, but um, anyway, so yeah, if we if we did that, then it's it's easier and more logical because also here's another thing. Um, if I'm thinking like Turgan, right? Another way to think like Turgan here is this is also very logically the place where the javelin was thrown, right? I mean, like the crime happened here, um, uh, right? Okay. If they're brought in, he comes out, Turgan comes out of his tower, they bring them up into the city, and so the reunion happens here under the trees next to the tower, not in the throne room inside, but he's come out, and here they are in the courtyard outside the, the tower and everything, um, and this is where the, the the javelin gets chucked in the first place. So, you know, that the execution happens at the scene of the crime is a kind of logic that works, um, yeah. I think. And that, and that would be a good reiteration of, of what's going on there. Yeah. So I, I think that would give you all the meaning to the scene that you needed without someone stopping to say, and the reason we're having this execution here is because... Right, right. If it's, um, if it's the scene where the crime happened, the audience will get it. Right. Right. And yeah, that, that would be easy, easy to convey nonverbally. Um, yeah. So all we need is this to back against one of the walls of the city, you know, which um, and so all we need is something kind of like the rocky outcropping that we get right. The tall like so it'd be up here somewhere. It's just this isn't in the middle of the city, but is, you know, back on one side. I, I think we can arrange it. We, that way we can still because I agree they're not going to chuck him off to have him crash down in the streets and then somebody's got to clean it up right like that that's not how he would do it even for symbolic purposes the symbolism is not good there and Turgon uh, would would uh, would would know that full well um, uh, yeah yeah now so yeah Orion I don't think no he wouldn't take him out to the perimeter of the valley, like out to the edge of Tomb Laden. I mean, there are plenty of cliffs out there. Um, I think it's, it's definitely got to be in the city. Uh, it's definitely got to be in the city. But, um, yeah. Yeah, otherwise, they're just, I mean, for the, from the viewers, it's just going to look like, and here we are, on random cliff, right? Um, yeah, okay. Um, it's true, someone's going to have to clean it up anyway, Nick, but seriously, like, you don't want blood stains. He, no one's going to want blood stains on the streets of of Gondolin, right? Uh, no matter how carefully it you know it gets cleaned up afterwards. So clearly, they're not going to do that. Um, that's that's perfectly clear. But again, you push him out. He, he still falls in the rocks. He still falls outside the city walls. Um. Uh, so, yep, yeah, that's good. Okay. All right. I think that was all my questions <laughs> about <laughs> Arthel and Aeol. Um, just because the storyline is directly from the text doesn't mean there's nothing to talk about. No, well, because this is... problem when we were <laughs> splitting up these scenes. Exactly. I mean, and this is, I mean, yeah, just because, just because the general decisions that were made are not don't depart from the text doesn't mean that it's, yeah, it's not a really important to think this through. Um, and that's, uh, uh, you know, scenes like this, like being able to think about, you know, whole scenes from the Silmarillion in this, like, you know, rich new context that we've given it through this creative project is one of the whole, like, payoffs, right, of this entire thing. So uh, no apologies. Um, well, so uh, there's... Good news and bad news, uh, Marie. The uh, the bad news is that we haven't 
gotten to the B and C plot uh, in today's session. But the good news is that this was the A plot and the primary story, so there shouldn't be nearly as much to talk about in the B and C plots, right? Engulfed vision remains, and I believe there's a lot to talk about there because that is something that is entirely made up by us. And by us, I might mean the three people in this in this podcast, but I might not. But you might not, yes. There is at yeah. least the introduction of certain unexpected characters that I did not know were going to be in this episode and was rather surprised to find there. Right. So there's some things to talk about and to see Definitely. how you feel about some of these uh, suggested choices. But I, so I, this is me not apologizing for the fact that we clearly need some more time to talk about this one. Um, but that's, uh, but that's good. That's good. So next time we shall broach the, um, the controversial end, uh, plenty of rich stuff to talk about here, uh, with the a plot, but, um, lots to talk about uh, in the yeah. BNC plot. Um, Good news, I, this, this, gives, this gives everybody enough time to go back and re-listen to uh, when we brainstorm this idea and remind ourselves of what we said. And then exactly. we can see what, what Nick and Marie are trying to sneak past us. Exactly. That's that's the thing. Yeah. Too often have they tried to rely upon the fact that our memory is really terrible and only getting worse. Um, so, yes, that's... Uh, <laughs> We're, we're we're trying to bail ourselves out here, um, yeah, cool, awesome. Uh, so that's great. And our next session. So of course we're uh, uh, speeding through the parts we're not getting to. Um, so our next session uh, is going to be on July twenty ninth. Um, so we're going back to uh, that's resuming to our normal original schedule, right? Um, we, we've shifted a whole bunch of episodes around and skipped from what's been happening here, but we'll be, everything will be back to normal on July 29th and then we'll be proceeding thereafter. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good job, think, At least until we deviate again. We right, would like to continue discussing this episode on July 29th and save I, other topics for later. I think we probably should. We should probably, okay. uh, uh, there's no, there's no postponing the evil day. We, we will, we. I think we will need to, we will need to finish this discussion. And by the way, this only gives more opportunity for folks to contribute to the discussion on sets, props, and locations. Um, I always enjoy the location, uh, the the location spotting. We we blow a big part of our theoretically infinite fantasy budget uh, on uh, location spotting uh, every season. So that's always a fun time. Um, so we're going to, um, uh, we're, we look forward to that, but yes, uh, so f- there's still time. There'll be an extra two weeks, uh, to be able to uh, participate in that. So if you go to forums.signumuniversity.org, um, click through to film film and season five, and you'll see a sub forum there, uh, for sets, props, and locations. Uh, so you can, um, make suggestions, make comments on the, uh, the stuff that's there. Uh, and, uh, and we'll be able to incorporate that into our discussion that will happen. Wait, sorry. Post pictures. Exactly. <laughs> post, post pictures of proposed locations. Exactly. Um, uh, so yeah, so that we'll, 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 we'll come back to that in August, uh, then. Um, so excellent. Cool. Next, next time. Next time we will 
<clears throat> discuss the vision of Fingolfin. And that will be so much fun. And now that you have seen the outline, you have a little bit of time to think about how you feel about it. So That's true. You can go into exactly. that conversation with everybody being on the same page and no one being blindsided. Who knows? Uh, who knows? Maybe everything will grow on me like five foot one Howarth grew on me uh, in between these past two episodes. Five foot three. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Five foot three. She's a towering tall uh, member of the holiday. right. The rest of the holiday are all like, you know, four foot eleven, five feet tall. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, Excellent. Okay. Very good. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, uh, uh, Marie and Dave, for joining me. This was a really fun discussion. Um, I loved mapping this uh, this out today. Um, and this is like one of the last times I'm going to have the excuse to use my gondolin background uh, for the rest of the season. Um, as we have officially brought the gondolin story to an end, right? And do, do we do we get any any? We don't get any like uh, Turgon shots, do we? And the end of the season, the end of episode 13, we're going to bring Fingolfin's body back to Gondolin and Turgon. Uh, of course, of course. So right, the corpse. Yeah. At the very end of, of the season. Right, right. But this okay. is the last story in Gondolin. Yeah. Right, right. Right, of course. Yeah, no, of course, I forgot about uh, uh, Fingolfin's body at the very end. So, okay, cool. So, um, right, excellent. Anyway. Thank you, everybody, and thanks, everybody, for your contributions to the discussion forum and to our discussion here tonight. Um, uh, Always great to have people involved uh, in this discussion. So I will end by saying, as always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.